sure a lot of you are familiar with the book, The Bhagavad Gita. It's one of the primary sacred literatures of the world. Many of the principles that are taught in the Bhagavad Gita are also understood in a variety of, especially Eastern traditions, and some of the principles are common to all of the great spiritual traditions of the world. There's a part of the Bhagavad Gita that discusses something which gives us a key to unlock our existence here in the world. And that is in the later chapters where Krishna describes what's called the three modes of material nature. So scientists have been for a long time looking for a unified field theory. They're looking for some kind of equation you could put on a t-shirt and really tell you what life is only about. And they're also trying to explain the laws of the universe, laws of chemistry, physics, and mathematics, which you know we have imperfect knowledge of on this planet. And certainly nobody, certainly no one can say with certainty that the laws as we understand them of physics, chemistry, and mathematics are applicable on every planet in the universe. In fact, they may operate very differently in other parts of the universe. But in the last chapters of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells us of something that operates everywhere in the universe. And once you get this, you can figure out how to work in the world. This is called the three modes of material nature. And then there's something above the modes of material nature. So I'll just very, very briefly, I mean, this is something we can go and do for uh, many hours or, or weeks or months. Maybe. But we're, so we're just touching on the subject. And if you feel that we're not going deeply enough, you're right, because we just have a few minutes. So it's just kind of an introduction to the topic. But there's basically modes of tamas, rajas, that Thomas is usually translated as ignorance. Would you ask me to give us one? Yes. Thank you, sir. And Rajas is generally translated as passion. The word Raja also means king. And not kind of, you know, the medieval European kings that we all overthrew, but kind of the noble, uh, idealistic idea. <laughs> Somebody who rides out in front of the battle upholds righteousness and things like that. And then sattva, sat means truth, it also means existence, that which is the essence of being, and sattva is generally translated as goodness. So these are ignorance, passion, goodness, but these are approximate English words, they don't capture the whole meaning of them. So, <coughs> thank you so much. Everything that we do in materialistic consciousness, everything that we do in ego, in ego-centric consciousness, fits into one of these modes. So any time that we're me-centered, that we're ego-centered, it's in one of these modes or a combination of these modes. Now, what's nice about understanding these modes is they determine how much happiness we're going to have in this life, where we're going in our next life how we understand uh, the world, how we filter the world, what kind of stories we tell about the world. And they also allow us a springboard to liberation from the world if we understand how to use them. In Thomas and Rajas, or ignorance and passion, one's idea of happiness is external based. One's idea of happiness is to have very pleasing objects 
for the senses and for the mind. So happiness in Thomas and Rajas is I have uh, pleasant things against my skin, I have pleasant things against my tongue, pleasant things against my ear, pleasant things against my nose, pleasant things against my eyes, and so forth. So whatever sense objects, we call this samsparshaja, happiness which is born from touch. So the touch of light against the eyes and smell against the nose. And if all of these are pleasant, and then also the mind, what is a pleasant touch for the mind? Is other people saying, you are great. You did that, you are accomplished. You are talented, you are, you are, woo. So that's the samsparshaja, for the mind. Now, all of that is dependent on something external. I mean, you can say to yourself, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great, but that doesn't have quite the same kick to it. Right? So all of those have, they're all external-based. And someone in ignorance and passion spends the vast majority of their time arranging their life so that they can get a constant stream of pleasing, and what's pleasing, of course, varies by person to person, what they consider to be pleasing, but what's pleasing according to their particular taste, objects touching the senses and the mind. Those in the mode of ignorance want this pleasant touch for the senses and the mind to happen very quickly. They want uh, very quick happiness, and they want to quickly get rid of distress. And because they're interested in speed, they're not so interested in method. So whatever gets me a fast result is good in the mode of ignorance. So the whole concept of fast food is a very mode of ignorance type of thinking. Never mind what this food does to the planet, never mind what it does to the creatures that sacrifice their lives for it, never mind what it does to my body. I get something I like to eat, tastes good, and tastes good now, and I got it cheaply. You follow what I'm saying? So in the mode of ignorance, you'll do the right thing if it's easy. You know, people in the mode of ignorance, so they're happy to do the right thing and the good thing if it's very easy, but if it's even slightly difficult, they're mostly interested in getting some happiness of touch as fast as possible and as easily as possible. And the mode of ignorance, one tends to be very lazy, uh, really likes to insult others, is very easily offended, uh, can be very unclean, likes to sleep a lot, finds happiness in all sorts of intoxicants and, and so forth. The destination for one who dies in the mode of ignorance is not very nice. It's either a human body in some very unfortunate situation, you'll be born into a place of war or poverty or crime, or you could be born into a lower species than human beings, or you could go to a lower planet than the Earth, where you become some kind of being uh, that's, that's not quite human and not quite animal, but has some, it has some lower qualities. And in ignorance, you don't know what to do and what not to do. Vision is, is clouded. There's no clarity. There's no joy. Happiness and ignorance is defined just in, almost like an animal, like I have just something nice to eat. So there, there's no real joy, there's no real peace, there's constant anxiety. Then in the mode of passion, uh, one is still defining happiness by some sparse job, by the, ha by the touch of the senses and the mind, except the difference in the mode of passion is that one has a feeling of righteousness and goodness, responsibility. So most of our modern human society is in passion and ignorance. And most of what we call civilized society is passion. Building big buildings, um, and anything where we're, we're trying to be the doer 
of this external base happiness for ourselves and others is very much in passion. And it's still all very external based. But someone in passion is willing to sacrifice a lot and work a lot for a long time, unlike someone in the mode of ignorance. And these are the people who may do, you know, big charity events, for example, big hospitals, big schools, big countries. Passion is very much about bigger, better, more, bigger, better, more, bigger, better, more, bigger, better, more, bigger, better, more. How great I am that I have done bigger, better, and more. But those in the mode of passion generally, generally, like to do things in the right way, and they're willing to work hard and sacrifice, and then they get some satisfaction, not just from everyone telling them how great they are and having nice food, but also from the sense that I worked hard for this. Mode, people in mode English don't care at all about that. All they just care about is getting the, the sense object. But people in the mode of passion, I worked hard for this. I did this. I created this. I am the master of this. Huh? And you can see in both of these modes, people are going to have a lot of anxiety because their source of happiness is not under their control. Their source of happiness is dependent on manipulation of the externals, which if we've all you know, been on this planet for more than a couple years, we find out that that's not always so easy to do. I can't always manipulate my environment to make sure that I have everything that's a pleasing touch for all of my senses and my mind. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. So you're always in anxiety about this. How am I going to be able to manipulate my environment? Now, in the mode of goodness, people's sense of happiness is more from within. Their sense of happiness comes from a sense of balance, equanimity, detachment, and rightness within. So someone in the mode of passion is like, I did the right thing, but it's very external. And someone in the mode of goodness is, I've done the right thing, therefore I am in balance. Someone in the mode of ignorance is only going to forgive if it's going to get them more money or something like that. Someone in the mode of passion will forgive because then other people will say, oh, you're such a forgiving person. Oh, yes, I am. I am so forgiving. And someone in the mode of goodness will be forgiving because by doing so, they're in balance internally. They're in harmony internally. Someone in the mode of goodness is not interested in bigger, better, more. They're interested in balance. They're interested in simplicity. Someone in the mode of goodness will also work very hard and sacrifice like someone in the mode of passion will. But the person in the mode of passion isn't wants to enjoy the fruit of their sacrifice. The person in the mode of goodness is enjoying the very act of sacrificing, is enjoying the very act of giving. So someone in the mode of passion, they'll give and they'll give and they'll give because they're looking at a future fruit which they hope to enjoy. The person in the mode of goodness will give because giving just feels so good. And it's so satisfying. But it's so egotistical. I am in balance. I am in harmony. You know. The person in the mode of goodness feels joy, they feel peace, they feel satisfaction. Not all the time, but generally. And a person in the mode of goodness, generally, can be detached from the things of the world. Heat and cold, happiness and distress, honor, dishonor, fame and infamy. Uh, uh, neutral to friends and enemies, seeing people equally and so forth. Sometimes people in the mode of passion try to imitate this. A lot of the political propaganda about loving everybody and multiculturalism is a mode of passion imitation of the true equanimity of the person in the mode of goodness. The mode of goodness is a very nice mode of nature uh, because it provides a, a very unique opportunity. When someone's in the mode of goodness, their mind is peaceful. In fact, the natural state of the mind is in goodness. It's explained that the mind is a creation of goodness. 
And the jumping of the mind, which happens in passion and ignorance, is an unnatural state. The default value is to be steady. In the mode of goodness, one's mind actually becomes steady. And as soon as one mind, one's mind becomes steady, there's a very large possibility, even a large probability, though it's not absolute, that one will realize, I'm not anything of this world at all. Because you get such clarity of vision and such clarity of understanding that one can see, hey, all this egotistical stuff is all a bunch of rubbish. I am a spiritual being. And one can, one can actually realize and understand that there's a supreme being of whom I am a part and I am a spiritual being. A uh, problem with the mode of goodness is because it is still ego-based. One can then just think, ha ha, I'm more balanced and more in harmony than anybody else and I'm not like those lowly people looking for external happiness. You follow? You know, there, there can be a kind of pride which is a little contamination of the mode of passion. There can be this pride that I'm, I'm a very balanced and, and peaceful individual and I'm, I'm above these sort of petty concerns of the world. You know? And there can be a, um, so much of a sense that I'm happy and I'm peaceful that one doesn't go beyond it. That one can get kind of stuck and say, okay, I'm happy and peaceful, not realizing that the happiness and peace of the mode of goodness is still within the concept that I'm part of this world. It's still within a concept of me-centered, and therefore it's only a tiny, 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 tiny glimpse of the actual happiness and peace and, and vision and clarity that happen on the spiritual platform. So you can get stuck in the mode of goodness, but the mode of goodness does open up one's consciousness to go beyond the modes altogether. So what we are trying to do in the Hare Krishna mantra particularly, and in the practice of bhakti yoga in general, as we are trying to go beyond all three of these modes. Generally, people look at spirituality within the modes, but actually within the modes, you cannot have real spirituality. You have a reflection of spirituality. Spirituality in the mode of ignorance is people who get into the occult. You know, people who play with the Ouija boards and worship ghosts and spirits and try to get different powers, and that's very much spirituality in the mode of ignorance. Spirituality in the mode of passion is what we normally call religion. You know, I'm a this religion, you're a that religion, I have these beliefs and I have this ritual, and my beliefs, beliefs and rituals are much better, I mean, far superior to your beliefs and rituals. In fact, probably my beliefs and rituals are the only valid ones and yours aren't. And even if your beliefs and rituals are only a tiny millimeter different from mine, then especially they're not bona fide. And I should probably shoot you because uh, you have a one millimeter belief different than I have. So this is what generally, you know, is religion in the mode of passion, and the whole idea that religion means family values, working hard in the world, being a good moral person, all of which is much better than being a criminal, but it's not really spiritual. You follow? Okay, so that's usually religion in the mode of passion, and religion in the mode of goodness is very much about meditation, and very much about developing good qualities like mercy and forgiveness and tolerance, and developing equanimity, and leading a simple life, being in harmony with the ecology and all that stuff. Uh, so it's much closer to real spirituality, but it's still not. It's still very earthbound and very egotistical centered. And from a, a genuinely spiritual point of view, the ego of goodness, passion, and ignorance are all basically the same. It's all ego-based. And it's all worldly-based, although we can have degrees. Mm -hmm. So bhakti is a spirituality that has nothing to do really with any of those. 
although people practicing bhakti will appear to the world generally to be in the mode of goodness. So usually someone will see someone practicing bhakti yoga and think, oh, that person's in the mode of goodness. Or they may appear like the higher mode of, like the higher end of the mode of passion. But they really have nothing to do with that at all. Because in bhakti, nothing is ego-based. In bhakti, everything is love-based. Everything is based upon the, the ultimate being, Krishna, and his supreme consort, who are uh, there in the sound of the Hare Krishna mantra. Hare as the feminine energy, Krishna and Rama as the masculine energetic, and that we simply want to uh, join in love with them. And at that, as soon as we join in love with them, we are connected to infinite, infinite joy and infinite peace, infinite and ever-expanding joy and peace and variety and personality and exchange, which is far beyond the uh, very limited although it seems pretty far out if you achieve it from passion and ignorance, but far beyond the limited uh, balance and harmony that one experiences in goodness. And everything we do in bhakti yoga is meant to bring us to this transcendent platform and to keep us there and then to expand uh, beyond that. Oh, I should tell you what the, the, I didn't tell you, I told you the birth and the mode of ignorance. Uh, if one dies in the mode of passion, if one dies in the higher end of the mode of passion, one becomes a very rich or powerful human if one dies in generally in the mode of passion, one becomes a human. If one dies in the mode of goodness, uh, one can be not so developed mode of goodness, one can take birth as a human who's like a scientist or a poet or a philosopher. If one dies in the higher areas of goodness, one goes to higher planets and becomes what other traditions call angels and different celestial beings in the universe. And if one dies in bhakti, one doesn't take another birth at all, uh, but one regains one's spiritual form and lives in our eternal, goes back to our eternal home, and lives in a, in a spiritual uh, environment forever. So I think I'm okay with time. Yes. If you want to know more about this, I would really suggest uh, Bhagavad Gita, especially chapters 14 through 18, which discuss the modes of material nature. Do we have any Bhagavad Gitas here? How much do you sell them for? 15? Good deal. If you don't already have one, please get one. And if you already have one, please get one for a friend. Questions? Anything you want to discuss? Yes, you have a question. Okay. Why ISKCON? Is that like some sort of enigmatic question that just two words I'm supposed to figure out what in the world you're indicating? Okay, can we separate ISKCON and Bhakti Yoga and ask me two different questions? So why choose Bhakti Yoga other, over other forms of spirituality and then why choose ISKCON over other organizations? Okay, because it's not exactly the same question. There are other organizations that practice bhakti yoga. It's kind of certainly not the only organization in the world. Why bhakti yoga? It's fun. Other forms of yoga will work. Karma yoga, gyan yoga, dhyan yoga. Uh, all forms of yoga fit into one of those four categories. In fact, all spiritual and religious practices fit into one of those four categories or some combination of them. I didn't talk about karma yoga and gyan yoga and dhyan yoga, so it's hard for anybody to know what in the world I'm talking about. That would have been a different class. 
karma yoga is where you act as if you're trying to do good things in the world, except you give away the fruits of your work. So you work for a fruit, but then you give it away. You work for a fruit and you give it away. That way you become detached. Uh, Gyan yoga is by studying the philosophy of the world, you become detached. All of these are meant to make the mind still. Dhyan yoga is what people think of as yoga, where you have different asanas and you have different pranayams and then you have certain rules and regulations and eventually you, you, you deal with the mechanics of the body to put the mind into samadhi. All three of those, karma, most religions in the world are teaching some kind of karma or karma yoga. So any of these are, um, while you're doing them, until you get to a very high level of practice, it's mostly difficult. And, and people have a hard time, especially at the present time, uh, we're told by the Vedas that this is the, win the cosmic winter of this planet, that the planet has four seasons. Uh, this is the, uh, we're, we're quite a bit into the, the winter season of the earth from a cosmic spiritual point of view. And in this time, it, doing these other processes which, are, which require a lot of difficulty, are not, it's not so favorable. Whereas bhakti is joyful from the beginning, if it's done properly. And you can mix these. You can have karma and bhakti mix, or gyan and bhakti mixed, and, and like that. But, but bhakti is, is you're, going right, you're going right to what you want to do from the beginning. Um, OK, really simple example. So I used to run a school, and my spiritual master said that I should teach Sanskrit, but I didn't know Sanskrit. So I had to get other people to teach Sanskrit. And somehow or other, at one point, I had nobody to teach Sanskrit. So I thought, well, I got to teach Sanskrit. If I'm going to teach Sanskrit, I got to learn it. So the Sanskrit alphabet is, is radically different from the English alphabet. And six months of trying to learn the Sanskrit alphabet, just the alphabet, uh, I wasn't being very successful, especially what's called the conjuncts. I just, I just couldn't get it. Was, it was really difficult. Then I had a visit to India, and I was in a part of India where people speak Hindi. Uh, the Hindi language uses pretty much the same alphabet as the Sanskrit language. So I started just reading signs. Instead of working on the alphabet in isolation, I was just reading words. And as I read words, which some of them were English words spelled with Sanskrit letters, so that was always really funny, you know. Tomato, <laughs> you know. Oh, it says tomato. So I found that by reading the words, I automatically learned the alphabet. And when I was trying to learn the alphabet in isolation, it was taking me months and months and months. One week of just trying to read words, and I got the alphabet. So the other forms of yoga are kind of like you're just trying to learn the alphabet. You're trying to learn the alphabet, and then you're going to learn to read. Whereas in bhakti yoga, you go right to reading and you learn the alphabet automatically as a side effect of reading. Because the purpose of all of the forms of yoga is to unite ourselves in love with the supreme being. And we work on that from day one. It's easy, it's simple, it's blissful. When I say it's easy, all forms of yoga require some difficulty. The difficulty of all forms of yoga is confronting the illusion within the heart. Okay, um, that's not fun, it's not pleasant. It's, in fact, remarkably unpleasant. And uh, it's basically confronting the ego in the heart, the, the false ego in the heart. In the context of bhakti yoga, it's as pleasant as it possibly can be. Because in the context of bhakti yoga, that very difficult part of spiritual practice 
is done in the context of a loving relationship with Krishna. In the other forms of yoga, it's done only in the context of one's own salvation. And that has to happen, no matter what form of, of yoga, no matter what form of spirituality you take. If you don't take that, it's not real spirituality. It's something in the modes that looks like spirituality. So bhakti is the easiest, most direct. You're doing from the beginning what you're going to do at the end. And the most difficult part of a spiritual practice, which is confronting, ooh, maybe I'm an egotistical, materialistic creep. Uh, is done in a, in a context of, of love and friendship with the divine. And therefore, the, the majority of the sting is gone from it. And it becomes actually quite a quite loving process. Something like, you know, if you have somebody that you love very much in whatever kind of relationship it is, and that person who loves you and who you love says to you, you know, there's this problem in our relationship that you have this and this and this issue. But because it's in the context of your loving relationship with them, and someone who you trust is telling you that there's something that you have to deal with, and you're dealing with it because you love them, there, there's a real sweetness and support to that. Whereas in the other forms of yoga, it's kind of like you're in the room alone looking in the mirror and going, <gasps> So that's why I suggest that you try bhakti yoga. Though the other forms of yoga are also valid and they also work. Um, why ISKCON? Well, that's a personal decision. I can tell you why I'm in ISKCON. Uh, there are certainly other organizations that practice bhakti yoga. I'm in ISKCON because I very much like the way that Srila Prabhupada, that A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, has taught the practice of bhakti yoga. He's taught it in a way that is very understandable and applicable in every culture of the world. I don't have to be an Indian. I don't have to live, I know I'm dressed something like an Indian, but I'm not at all an Indian. I'm sure you can tell I'm an American. I'm sure you can tell that in the first 30 seconds of my talk uh, from New York City. So it's a practice of bhakti that can be done by anybody in the world, any culture in the world, any place in the world. Uh, Srila Prabhupada had the genius of taking the basic, basic principles of bhakti and making it applicable anywhere in the world. He has, he has voluminous instructions in the form of books and, and recordings, so you have a huge amount of support for your practice. Also, it's an international society with probably millions of adherents. I don't think anybody's ever counted all of them, but there's a whole lot of them. <laughs> I mean, and you'll find in the society, not everybody, and I really want to emphasize, it's not everybody, it's an open society and anybody can come, and therefore some of the anybody's who come are not what you would want them to be, because that's just what it is. But a, uh, and if you expect everybody in ISKCON to be on a very spiritual level, you will be very bitterly disappointed very quickly. However, there are a large, in my experience, which is extensive, uh, not only in time, but also in, in geographical locations, there's a very large percentage of the membership of ISKCON who are functioning at a very, very high level of spiritual realization and awareness. There's a tremendous amount of support. There's a tremendous scope for utilizing all of your talents and your ability and your personality in bhakti yoga. And most other organizations that teach bhakti yoga simply don't have that much facility. Having said that, some people may prefer other organizations. I'm not going to say ISKCON is the only one rah, 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 because I'm a member of ISKCON. I think that's childish. Uh, but I, I, I am myself very happy to be a member of ISKCON most of the time. There are some times I run into parts of ISKCON that I don't like and go, oh my God, what am I doing as a member of an organization? Uh, that's just the world. It's just like, you know, we, we, may, we may love our country, but we don't love everything about our country. Yes? 
like that. We love our family. We don't love everything about our family. So it's, it's something like that. You know, I'm, a, I'm American. I, I pretty much like America, but I don't like everything about America. I don't even like all the leaders of America, Hare Krishna. So, you know, there, there's nothing more I want to say about that. So it, it's just, you know, it, but, but you see, okay, is there, is there enough here? And trying to practice bhakti yoga without any sort of society is difficult. It's difficult. We're in a, a general society that is primarily in the modes of passion and ignorance. Trying to become spiritual just on your own accord is, is, is difficult. The society in general doesn't support it. So, In ISKCON, you'll be able to find whether it's small groups of people that you want to hang out with or large groups of people, if you want to get involved in big projects. Uh, there, there's, there's really facility for everyone uh, from all different backgrounds, of all different talents, and so forth and so on. And you really have a, a very, very good support system and uh, when, I'm not going to say if, but when in ISKCON you run into people who are not so spiritual because we are open, uh, anybody can come, uh, just look at them and smile and, and go on and associate with the people who are. Is that a good enough answer? Okay. Anybody else? Did that answer all parts of your question? Okay. Okay. Um, and anybody else want to ask anything? Yes. talking about that on an individual level or collective level? Individual level, very personal. If I want to establish well, one verse in the Bhagavad Gita is Out of many, many thousands, one person is going to be interested in perfection. And of all those who are really interested, only one really perseveres and finds ultimate truth. So I think whenever you want something that's a very high quality. The number of customers, real customers, is always small. And I, I don't, you know, as, as soon as you get to some, as soon as you get to a mass movement, things begin to get watered down also, you know, actually. I mean, it would be lovely, and, and we're aiming for it, and we'd like for it, if society in general was at least supportive of spiritual values. That would be really, really wonderful. You know, if, if vegetarian restaurants were the norm, if the only kind of dairy products you could get were a himsa dairy, you know, that, that, would, that would be wonderful. If there wasn't any more chemical pesticides and fertilizers on the planet. I mean, all these things, I'm just naming a few, but there's, we go on and on and on. You know, that, that would be a wonderful thing. And, and even if most people were doing that because they were just in goodness or the higher parts of passion and they weren't even interested in transcendence, uh, it would make it so much easier for those of us who are interested in transcendence. And in ISKCON, we're trying to achieve that also on the level of society. We're really trying 
It, it's difficult, but we're trying. Uh, we have some hope from some predictions in the scriptures that the world will be like that, at least for a little while. Kind of some warm days in the middle of a winter. Maybe you from Brisbane haven't the foggiest notion of what I'm talking about when I talk about winters. But uh, in places where there are winters, there are often some warm days. So in this cosmic winter, it's predicted that there'll be some days that are almost like the previous ages of the Earth. But, you know, there's, you've got enough support. If, if, you want, if you want really to find ultimate reality, if you want to find love of God, you really want to, even if you want other things too, and you don't really want to enough to really, really, really want to right now, but even if you really want to on some level with some percentage, I don't mind children. Okay, but don't, don't take it right on my account. You'll get so much help, and you're not going to just get help on the platform that you can see and hear with your gross senses. You're going to be getting help from the ultimate reality. A lot. So don't be afraid. You'll be supported and you'll be helped. You won't always be consciously aware of how you're being helped in the moment, but you will be aware at some point about how you're being helped. And you will always get the help you need. Always. You'll always get the support and the guidance. So the, the help and the enlightenment will actually come from within. So that, that spark of desire for something beyond the illusion, for something beyond the world, for something beyond the ultimately nastiness of, of the false ego. Keep it alive and fan it. Even if it's just small steps, small steps, big steps, keep going forward and you will get support. You'll also get tests. You get people who oppose you. That's the way the world works. Whatever you try to do, that will happen. That, that you, you're not going to avoid that. There's no choice you can make in life where nobody will ever oppose you and where everything will always be easy. Good luck with that. But you will get support. It will come to you. It will come to you externally in the form of other humans on this planet. It will come to you in the form of the facility that you need. It will come to you uh, on a transcendent level from within in, in guidance and there are Krishna himself and, and many, there are many higher entities that will support you in that journey. And you don't need a, a full society of support. Although we would love it. We would love it. We wish the whole society was supportive. We'd like to have that. It would be really wonderful, but it's not necessary for an individual's own journey. Okay. Yes? The main indication of spiritual progress is not any of those things. The main, main indication of spiritual progress is that your clarity, your joy, your peace, your attachment to Krishna in love, and your disinterest, not rejection, but disinterest 
in anything having to do with egocentric things and touch happiness, sense happiness, decreases. Not, not aversion, but just, eh, why? <laughs> that that kind of equanimity towards happiness that comes from the other people praising your ego and having pleasant taste, sound, smell, touch, etc. that you're just like, why? Because you have something more. That's the main indicator of spiritual progress. And obstacles are just part of the, part of it is just part of the material energy. You're in the material energy and you have a material body and there's, and some of, some of it is residuals from previous karma. Some of it is blessings that come in a form that we don't recognize as blessings at, in that moment. So some of it is just that we're here. And you're here, you have a body, the body is going to get old, which judging from how old you are now, that probably doesn't mean very much to you. Uh, but at a certain point, if you live long enough, it will, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. So the body gets old. That in and of itself is an obstacle for the vast majority of us. The uh, one's stamina uh, decreases. One's ability to work in the world decreases. It's, uh, it's meant for a time of more introspection. But if you're very outward based, it appears to be an obstacle. So that's just part of being in the world. And some obstacles are self-created. I mean, all obstacles in one sense are self-created because we're here because of our own creation. And so anything that has to do with an obstacle is ultimately in the ultimate issue self-created uh, because in our natural spiritual environment, there's no such thing as an obstacle. So some of, some of it is, is some reaction to something that we've done, although we can't always see the relationship between our action and the obstacle. And others are not obstacles at all, it, it, but they look like that. Um, the example that I like to give, does anybody have a pen or a pencil handy? Just only if it's really handy. Oh, thank you so much. I don't need the paper, sweetie, just the pencil. But thank you. So as I, I, as I think I mentioned to you, I was a teacher. So one thing you teach children is how to write, and you teach them how to hold their pencil like this. Because if you hold your pen or pencil like this, you can write for longer periods of time without fatigue in your hand. But parent, when kids come to school, she, she's totally fine. When, I, I really don't mind kids. I have a whole bunch of them, and I don't mind them. So when kids come to school, they may come, you know, and holding their pencil like this or like this or all kinds of weird ways. So generally, you just tell the kid, hold your pencil like this, and they do it. But some kids just won't. So we had this little, uh, little rubber thing that you put on a pencil, and it has indentations in it that if you use it, it puts your fingers in the right position. And we're giving that to the child to facilitate their proper writing so that their hand won't get tired. We're doing this for them as a favor. But I will guarantee you that a lot of the children to whom we do this do not perceive it as a favor. They perceive it as an obstacle. And when, when you're not looking, they take it off. Or they put their fingers over it, or they push it up on their pen or something like that. Or they'll have two pencils, one with it and one without it. And when you're looking, they'll pick up the one with it. And when you're not looking, they'll pick up the one without it. So the way that they get rid of that obstacle is by using it 
As soon as they use it and they learn how to hold the pencil property, we remove it. And we never intended it to be an obstacle, we intended it to be an aid. So uh, things on the spirit, there are things in the, uh, in the spiritual path like that, that in that moment, we, we are perceiving as some sort of an obstacle, we're perceiving as some sort of difficulty, but it's, it's given to us as an aid to do what we're asking we want to do, uh, which has come to enlightenment and love of God. So those are basically your three sources of obstacles. The general material energy, which we're in because of our own doing, specific reactions to specific activities which we're own doing, and things that aren't obstacles at all, that are, being, uh, that are coming by divine arrangement for our help. And that later we look back at them and go, oh, that was a blessing. But not all obstacles are in that category. Okay, we are now at 5.40. Are we, should we end now? Anybody else? Yes. Is what just an expression? There's, in our natural state, our consciousness is that the center is Krishna. And we are a part of Krishna. We are not at the center. Now, in a sense, because we're a part of Krishna, we're at the center with Krishna. But we're not in the center independently. To think I'm in the center independently is an illusion. If I think I'm the most important person in my family, my family is the most important person in America, America's the most important country in the world, the world's the most important planet in the solar system, the solar system's the most important solar system in the galaxy, the galaxy is the most important in the universe, and therefore I am the most important in the universe. That's nuts. I mean, it's just full on nuts. So the false ego is that kind of, of madness. I am the center, me alone. And that's, that's not just, uh, as they say, children laugh 200 times a day and adults only laugh 20 times a day. <laughs> so that's an illusion. We need to get rid of this idea that, that I am at the center and I am the most important because it's... it's Logically, it's an absurdity. It's a complete absurdity, and there's not one other person on the earth that would agree with that, except for somebody who might be in love with us, and temporarily they'll agree with that while they're in some kind of la-la land of love with us, but they won't agree with that for five or ten years. They might agree with that for you know a few months. So it's, it's on a logical level, it's just not a fact that I'm the center of the universe and I'm the most important person in the universe. It's just, it's, so that, uh, that feeling... Is, needs to be eliminated. And it's that feeling that really causes all of our trouble. It's not real. We can say, well, I don't think that, but... You know. ah! As... That was very clever. Do you like to scream? How old are you? How old is she? How old are you? Are you two? When my daughter was two, she would sometimes start screaming contests with all the other kids. She'd get a bunch of kids together and she'd start screaming and they'd all start screaming and all the other parents would say, it's all your daughter's fault. 
But now she's 38 and she doesn't scream anymore. She sings, but she doesn't scream. What do you think about that? So no, I wasn't speaking metaphorically or poetically. I was speaking quite directly. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> no, I know what you think about that. <laughs> so what we, what we want to go is we want, we want to go to the true ego. The, the true ego, there is a true ego. The true ego is I'm a wonderful, beautiful, amazing spiritual being who as it is an infinitesimal part of the whole. As that infinitesimal part of the whole connected with the whole, I have access to the infinite of the whole. But I have access to the infinite of, to the, of the whole by my connection. On my own, I'm infinitesimal. When I'm connected to the whole, I have access to the infinite. Rather than I am the infinite. And on that note, I think we should probably end. So thank you very much. Hare Krishna.